Hey everyone, I'm Jacob. I'm Gabriel. I'm Aranya. We're the intellectuals. These are the issues. Let's get right into it. Hello and welcome to the 11th episode of the Intellectuals Presents Colon Tackling the Issues podcast. Today, we're going to be discussing the viability of Andrew Yang, a presidential candidate for uh, the Democratic nomination. We're discussing his viability to become the president and not just that, the viability of all his policies. He's currently polling at around 3.8%. Uh, in the polls, and uh, we just think it would be interesting to look at. So we have brought on a guest. Uh, we'd like to welcome Arjun. Thank you. Hey, fellas. How are you? Welcome. Uh, um, so we're just going to let Arjun start us off. And we've brought on here, it's actually been his suggestion to talk about uh, Andrew Yang and his viability and why he is a good candidate for president, and this has actually become more of a common opinion as this 3.8% that he has in the polls is a lot more than what he had before. So this is continuing with an upwards general trend in his um, in his uh, popularity. Well, Andrew Yang's three fundamental policies are the freedom dividend, Medicare for all, and a human-centered capitalism. Now, the freedom dividend essentially is a form of universal universal basic income of $1,000 a month for every American adult above the age of 18, completely independent of everyone's work status or any other factor affecting them. Now, there there is a valid reason for this to be here because approximately 40 million Americans live below the poverty line. When you consider a fully developed nation like America, you wouldn't imagine that this exists. Well, the facts... The facts suggest the opposite. Not only that, many people are stuck in the wrong jobs because of a need to survive. Because of, because of the effects of late-stage capitalism and many other societal issues, people are essentially sacrificing their passions, sacrificing what they love to earn money to survive. Not only that, because of this issue, a cons- the, the consumer economy will inevitably fail. Now, this, this is obviously there to combat that. Then that links really nicely into his next policy about about human-centered capitalism, which essentially means fighting automation. So, obviously, capitalism has led to unparalleled innovation, and that's only for one reason: money. The whole the whole appeal of capitalism is that it provides an incentive for both people and companies to work harder, think harder, and create a better future for everyone. Now, this worked pretty well, right? It's improved the human condition. But over time, because of the lack of checks and balances, capitalism has turned into what some people consider corporatism, where we're essentially being ruled by some, by some large companies, which I probably won't need to name. You're very familiar with that. Like Amazon, for example. Now, it's a fairly recent development, but that essentially displaces humans as the most important element. Because today, most, most companies would prioritize money over their people, which is, I think most people would agree, pretty ethically wrong. So human capitalism is what Andrew Yang, is another one of Andrew Yang's biggest policies. And it's essentially, 
same as capitalism, but geared towards maximizing human well-being and fulfillment. So he says that the three central tenets of human capitalism are that humans are more important than money. The unit of a human capitalism economy are the people, not the dollar, and that markets serve to serve our common goals and values. Now, this idea goes way, way back to like the invisible hand from from economics hundreds of years ago. This was this was and always has been the fundamental concept of capitalism, but that's gotten so perverted over the past five to ten years. Um, so there's a lot to unpack there, but we've start, we'll start with the universal basic income. Um, in my opinion, it will become essential in the future due to some reasons we've already covered and mentioned, like AI and automation. And no matter how hard we try to offset that, it's going to happen anyway, because change is always constant. You can't really, you can't stop it. You can only slow it down. And when millions of people who lose their main source of income and wealth, which it, which stems from the well, uh, the value of their labor. Uh, it will be important to support them in the future to ensure financial security, remove the poverty trap, and support more path choices. Now, many people argue that you know, if you get if you give people money for free without working, would you, they're not going to exactly tr- work harder. But um, Andrew Yang himself has stated that multiple studies have shown that only two groups were shown to have worked less: new mothers who spend more time with their children and teenagers who spend more time in education. Even if many disagree with the freedom with the freedom dividend. Uh, one cannot argue that Andrew Yang isn't trying to prepare America for the future so that it's ready when AI and automation slowly replace humans in many aspects of economies. Uh, what's interesting, though, is that Andrew Yang's, while his freedom dividend is a very, I suppose, vital uh, aspect for the future, it will be vital. And I personally agree that it will be needed in the future once automation kicks in, once people are losing jobs by the thousands to computers who will be able to design software, design um you know, even to the extent where they're doing art and music almost as good as human beings. But the universal basic income currently is completely infeasible with the current uh, state welfare system. For example, uh, his freedom of dividend states that he wants to give adults, uh, 250 million adults in the United States, $1,000 per month. This means that Andrew Yang, under his economy, would have to spend $2.5 billion per year, sorry, per month, just to sustain uh, this level of spending on the on humans on pe- on people for the UBI. Uh, the cost of the freedom dividend, uh, an annual revenue, may uh, produce two thousand eight hundred dollars of losses uh, annually. Bill- sorry, two thousand eight hundred billion dollars of losses annually um, per, uh, and that's just per annum, and that is just for the cost. Because currently, when you think about it, the current welfare system only takes up five hundred and sixty million dollars of budget spending in the United States. So where is this $2 billion deficit, this $2 billion gap between um, UBI spending and uh, current welfare state spending? How is it going to be covered up? Where is this going to come from? We don't know. And neither does Andrew Yang, apparently. Well, Andrew Yang uh, says that he's been going to be able to implement policies that will make up the cost of the freedom dividend. This includes a 10% value-added tax, financial transaction tax. And the 10% value-added tax... Theoretically, it's supposed to hit big companies the hardest. And as well as that, you have a carbon tax, tax capital gains, uh, ordinary income rate. But it's this 10% value added tax that people really focus on because this is where uh, $952 billion of the uh, 
annual revenue that will go to the cost of the freedom dividend is going to come from. Uh, This is from taxfoundation.org, which is uh, the main foundation for uh, these kind of things in America. And so looking at the total tax revenue of the new taxes that he'll implement, um, this will give us $1.291 trillion, which sounds like a lot, but is incomparable to the $2.8 trillion which is more than double that, which would be the cost of the freedom dividend, giving us a net effect of negative $1.482 trillion. Uh, currently, the national debt is sitting around $22 trillion, and, uh, which is more than $2 trillion from when Donald Trump was put in office. And uh, while the Democrats, as a party, do not desire to have uh, Donald Trump re-elected in four in... Uh, at the end of this year, do you think, uh, Arjun, that it is feasible to put Andrew Yang in as a candidate with these, um, with these seemingly extremely socialist ideas? Well, I wouldn't consider them socialist at all because fundamentally, it's not you're not giving people money. Well, you are, but the whole concept is that. You're just raising the base income from $0 a year to $12,000 a year. So it's essentially providing people a safety net, right? Because if you look at it anywhere in the world right now, what are your common problems? People are hungry. People are starving. People are dying because they can't afford health care. People can't, they can't afford to send their kids to school, can't afford to drink, can't afford to you know, even take a shower, right? Now, let's look at it from purely an ethical standpoint. Would you consider this socialist at all? While this may not be seen as socialist to many, and personally, I don't see this as socialist, the UBI is not a good form of state welfare. And the main reason is that $1,000 per month is absolutely nothing. It, On a major scale, it actually does not cover living costs at all in any of the big cities or even, even most of the small cities. For example, uh, monthly living costs in San Jose uh, are, I believe, $3,000 to $200 per year for the lowest end of available services. $1,000 per month will not cover this at all, not, not even a single bit. This would force uh, Americans living in cities on their current state welfare system and current uh, income to move into the rural areas, which are much cheaper. And this will create an even larger disparity between those who are richer and those who are poorer, as those who are richer will continue to live in the more expensive but um, higher quality residences uh, towards the West and East Coast, and everybody else will have to move towards the Midlands, which, again, increases disparity and somehow furthers a problem that Andrew Yang is trying to fix. Uh, I'd just like to ask a quick question to these uh, to the opponents of the universal basic income. If you're saying that this cost anyway will not cover uh, living, uh, the cost of living, then is it better to give them nothing and make them work even harder to survive and not even provide like even a basic amount of support? Uh, the fact of the matter is that the current welfare system does provide support. It does. It's not completely successful, but it does to a better extent than UBI does. And it's important to note that the uh, the... Tests that Andrew Yang refers to all the time have been done in different countries under different uh, social systems and under different spending. For example, the main test that was done was in Canada, which already has a uh, welfare system where the state spends more on welfare than it does in the United States, which means that the transition from UBI to Canada, from Canada's welfare system to UBI would be less detrimental to its economy. 
Another UBI test, which Andrew Rangi often refers to, is the Finland UBI test. And again, Finland, as a uh, as uh, a country, a developed country in the uh, northeast of Europe, it it's not a good representation of the United States, and it's not a good representation of what could happen to the United States if UBI was implemented. I think it's unfair to say as well that uh, the Americans get no support. Uh, regular Americans work very hard to. And even the low-income people need that to make ends meet. And the problem with the UBI is while there's this $1,000 a month, this vast increase of taxes will uh, automatically make it um, unsustainable and increase the national debt by even even more. And uh, considering VAT to finance UBI and combat tax avoidance by large firms, the VAT will harm the poorest in society which is what the UBI is trying to help. As well as this, I think it's uh, unfair to say, uh, to make the comparison between countries like Finland and other currently socialist countries. Finland is a socialist country, but as well as that, Finland has a minute population compared to that of America. So that's why uh, focusing on its universal basic income is not exactly the right choice. I think we've uh, reached a little bit of a disconnect here because universal basic income or the freedom dividend isn't designed to replace benefits. It's not a selective measure at all. It's it's just $1,000 a month for every American to just s- stimulate the economy, if nothing else. It's not supposed to replace benefits. It's not supposed to... It's got nothing to do with it. And... On top of that, we talk, you talked about models such as uh, Finland, for example, but it's, I'll, I'll agree with you, it's not the same, but there is, it's not really been done anywhere else. It's something revolutionary. So there's really no other way to really predict it. And then on top, but I do agree with you on the VAT part. VAT is a regressive tax, and, and I'll give that to you. It's, it's, it's not ideal, but is, is there really another way to better finance it? Because almost every developed nation has a value-added tax of some sort. And the United States is, is missing that. Don't Yeah, 160 out of 193 countries, including almost every single developed country, except the United States, has some form of VAT. It's, it's an effective way of generating revenue, right? You can't evade it. You can't, you can't play with it. You just pay it when you're there. And it's, it's, it's foolproof. Now, this issue of how, like, Andrew Yang's uh, presidency would pay for this, but I would suggest that, well, first of all, let's just give some brief background on the U.S.'s military spending, which is around $650 billion in 2018, which is more than the next, next five combined, with China coming in second at $250 billion. Now, everyone already knows that the U.S.A. has the largest and most sophisticated military in the world, with planes having, un- like the F-22 Raptor plane, already being unrivaled amongst any other military planes. And yet they're already producing the new F-35 Lightning, which itself costs billions to produce even one single unit. Now, perhaps people say that this is necessary, that um, you do need such sophisticated equipment to protect the lives of Americans. But you know, many could argue that some of this spending could at least be transferred to something more perhaps beneficial to the everyday American because it can be I kind of find it hard to justify this military spending 
when when trying to say uh, when trying to stay fiscally conservative uh, in terms of supporting Americans. Uh, what's more, Arjun, you mentioned that you would like that the UBI, the Freedom Dividend, which Andrew Yang offers, is not meant to replace uh, current social benefit systems. The fact of the matter is that UBI is too expensive for VAT. It is too expensive for the current U.S. state welfare system, and it is too expensive for the United States to maintain. At this current moment, it is too expensive for the United States to maintain over any given amount of time. In order to do so, they would have to borrow more money from other countries through the form of bonds, through loans, and this would increase national debt even more. And the United States national debt debt is already in a uh, precarious position uh, due to the uh, China trade war, U.S.-China trade war, which we're still recovering from, which the U.S. is still recovering from. And so in the current position at the current time, it is infeasible to assume that the United States will be able to implement the UBI given any tax system, any amount of loan, any amount of cutting uh, expenses it is simply too much. Uh, I'd also like to point out that America is the global superpower and that at least a certain amount of military spending is uh, necessary. Whether that needs to be cut is uh, a different topic, but isn't really considered in uh, Andrew Yang's plan. But... Uh, I know we'd all love to talk about the universal basic income for a long, long while, but we do have to move on. So another policy that Andrew Yang is supporting is the idea of removing mass incarceration due to the fact that, as stated on his Yang 2020 website, America imprisons a higher percentage of its citizens than almost any other country in the world. And it, it has been shown that minorities are disproportionately represented in this group. This would entail shifting America away from the tough mandatory minimums and the tough on crime stance held by many within the country. In addition, this platform supports the ideas of shifting federal drug policy away from punishment and towards treatment, like rehabilitation, ending the use of for-profit private prisons, funding programs targeted at reducing recidivism and increasing reintegration into the, into the workforce. I personally believe that this is a huge positive step as it will lead to more active economic agents and lower costs for maintaining such high numbers of prisoners. Moving on, uh, not moving on, but actually focusing on one of Jacob's points, which is the drug policy. Uh, Yang supports the legalization of cannabis and decriminalization of opioids, including heroin, but does not support legalization or decriminalization of cocaine. Uh, he cites Portugal's drug policy as evidence of effectiveness of his own policy. So to get uh, people who don't know up to speed, Portugal uh, in 2007, I believe, uh, decriminalized all um hard drugs, all opiates, all uh, cocaine, uh, marijuana, and instead of uh, treating the people who use them as criminals, they decided to take a different stance, take a different method, where they instead helped on focused on treating them. So money that was spent towards drug enforcement, the local drug enforcement agency was instead shifted to hospitals, to clinics, and uh, other places like that. And it saw unprecedented uh, levels of success, which hadn't been seen with the previous uh, tough on drug stance. Um, Opioid and especially heroin use fell by uh, 60% in four years. Uh, HIV infections uh, dropped by, I believe, 30%. And a similar trend was seen in Switzerland when they decriminalized heroin and uh, users were given safe needles, were carefully weaned off, were given free 
hospital and clinic visits for heroin usage. And uh, overall, we're given even social helpers who help them find jobs, get back on their feet. So Yang clearly su uh, supports this sort of decriminalization. And perhaps after almost 40 years of a war on drugs, maybe there is a time for change and to realize that we have lost the war on drugs and that we need to take a different approach, which is what Yang believes. I just think that with the legalization of marijuana, it provides definite risks for everyone involved uh, due to the fact that it is a gateway drug, making it, this makes it more accessible. And no matter what people say about the regulation, that it just makes it more feasible. And it seems that uh, with marijuana being a gateway drug, uh, decriminalizing and legalizing opioids and uh, uh, mar marijuana uses seems to help current drug users more than it helps the rest of the population. Um, but there are arguments for legalizing all of this because first of all, now that's legal, uh, there, won't, there won't be as much of a big black market influence. And now what the government can do is introduce regulation. You can introduce really, really high prices, for example. You can introduce standards so that people are like, well, this is an idea, but giving them what they are paying for, you know, so they're not being like scammed or, or taking in something much worse than they intended. Like, this may seem a bit counterintuitive, but having legalized drugs is the way forward. That's what I personally believe. I would uh, completely agree with you there. And uh, Gabby, I, I think the whole thing about marijuana being a gateway drug is pretty hotly debated. But the statistics do seem to suggest that alcohol is much, much more of a gateway drug than than marijuana, than tobacco even. So if we're not doing anything about alcohol, if we're keeping it legal, which I personally believe it should be, why are you so against marijuana? Because logically, if you're saying, if you're saying this, you'd also be for making alcohol illegal. Am I right? I'm not for making alcohol illegal, but marijuana is... Uh, marijuana is definitely a more uh, emotive, it's more of an emotive argument for me as opposed to one that seems to be based in facts. People, uh, people are constantly, you're constantly hearing about uh, accidents with marijuana and of course there's DUIs and that is involved, but you can definitely see that there's a clear difference between marijuana and uh, alcohol and it's a significantly more unpleasant uh, drug, but as it is also something that you smoke, it seems to me that it is a lot more dangerous than alcohol, but this can be uh, definitely interpret interpreted. Maybe in terms of uh, effects on, in terms of effects on society, at least I'd say that alcohol is much, much more harmful because not only do you have obviously the cost with treating conditions like liver cirrhosis and, uh, kidney problems caused by drinking alcohol. Don't quote me on this. I'm, I can't be certain of the fact. This is just by logic. But marijuana tends to be much less harmful to society. I mean, if we ignore the costs involved in incarcerating people for marijuana-related um, marijuana offenses, at least. 
Um, so uh, an interesting statistic, which I've just pulled up from drugabuse.com, uh, marijuana, the number of deaths, sorry, through alcohol near, uh, are reported by the CDC to be nearly 88,000. This includes DUIs, this includes overdoses, this includes liver cirrhosis, and uh, all the yes, byproducts of... it's a legal drug. ...byproducts of... Uh, legal byproducts of uh, marijuana, uh, sorry, alcohol abuse. In comparison, the number of deaths caused by marijuana is almost zero. A study found that fatal dose of TCH, uh, the potent, THC, sorry, the potent chemical in marijuana, would be between 15 and 70 grams. To give you an idea of how much that is, a typical joint only contains about half a gram of marijuana. You would have to smoke between 238 and 1,113 joints in a day to overdose on marijuana. And this is physically, not not literally, not theoretically, feasibly, uh, physically unfeasible. Now, the intellectuals here are getting a bit rowdy, so I'd like to take a step back and take a pause sort of at this conversation. Now, let us ask ourselves the question, why is alcohol legal in our society today? Because it was legal in societies hundreds of years ago. Just because it was, in, it was, it was introduced early and because it's, it's so steeped in history that that's why the implications of trying to make alcohol legal would be very serious but because sort of marijuana is now the new the new the new drug in town so to speak that everyone is like unaware of the effects so they're all like it's it's new so people don't like this new change but they all they all prefer alcohol even though it's much more damaging to the body and to people around them uh, I think we need to move on to uh, Medicare for all. And um, I think uh, I'm going to let Arjun start us off because this is another one of Yang's main policies. And I'd just like to uh, have everyone consider the question uh, that I have, which is if he has the freedom dividend and if he has all these taxes, where is the money going to come from for the Medicare for all? All right. So... American, American healthcare is riddled with problems. Aside from the fact that it's unafford, almost unaffor, unaffordable for most people, there's also a huge problem with access. And as a candidate, I feel like Andrew Yang, he, he's a normal guy, right? He's, he's not a politician. And I feel like he genuinely cares about the health of Americans. It's... It's... Uh, Essentially, what it is, is that believing in healthcare as a human right. They want universal coverage for every single American. And this involves controlling the cost of prescription drugs, investing in technology to cut waste and boost access, revamping, revamping the whole system of care into more comprehensive care and to forms of well-being. As a, I don't remember who said this, but someone once, a, a doctor in a documentary I watched a while back once said that, American healthcare is in the business of treating, but really, it should be in the business of prevention. We want to keep our people healthy. We want to keep Americans healthy, not just treat them when they're sick. That's a fundamental problem, not just with, not just with medical care, but also with the prison system, for example. It, the whole thing links back to the initial conversation I had about corporatism as opposed to capitalism. Both hospitals and prisons are being run for profit. People want, people want people to get sick so they can earn more money off them, fundamentally. And I, and I would say that's completely wrong. This is one of the things I respect Andrew Yang most for, because he's, he's, he's working for what's right. And also on the issue of Medicare and Medicaid, um, 
Many people say that it's just not feasible for a country like America with over 300 million people to, so every, for that everyone is supported. Well, it really doesn't help when the GOP undermines the, care, the bill itself while also complaining about how inefficient it is. This is a common trick by many politicians, but a, a first good step would be to have consensus in the Senate and in the House because if one, if one, si if one, if one half of American politics is almost dedicated to try undermining and cutting the efficiency of the bill, then obviously it will never be rolled out efficiently. Uh, cycling back to Yang and how he fits into all of this, uh, Yang uh, actually supports the bill that Bernie Sanders, the Medicare for All bill that Bernie Sanders has um, implemented or has at least uh, shown to the House. Uh, the simplest explanation of exactly how the Medicare for All works is that the bills move to the United States, move the United States from the current multi-payer health system to known as what is a single-payer health system. So instead of multiple groups such as private healthcare insurance companies, employers, and the government playing, paying for Medicare and Medicaid, only the federal government would pay for Medicaid. This reduces a lot of uh, bureaucracy in the middle steps. It, it reduces a lot of costs associated with you know, transferring um, information correctly, transferring people from uh, Medicaid or Medicare provider from one insurance company to another. And it focuses solely on one uh, government, one agency, reducing uh, spending all the costs. And it's estimated to be six, uh, 200, uh, sorry, 600 uh, million dollars per year, which considering the current spending is about on state healthcare uh, is about $500 million per year. This is a an increase to be sure, but not as drastic of an increase as uh, many people, especially the GOP, try to say that it is. So most clearly, uh, Medicaid might be working. It might be a good system. And Andrew Yang clearly supports something which uh, has benefits for almost every American. Currently, about 27.5 million people do not have health care. And 45% of uninsured adults say that the high cost of coverage was the reason they remain uninsured. So by reducing costs, by allowing the federal government to pay for it, reducing uh, costs for people by allowing the federal government to pay for it, this could greatly benefit the 27.5 million people who do not have uh, health insurance and who are at great risk almost every day. Uh, I also think that we should consider some of the costs of these uh, maybe in a later episode, for example, the loss of jobs in the private healthcare sector definitely does need to be looked at. Uh, this has been an excellent episode. Thank you very much for, uh, uh, thank you very much, Arjun. Uh, it's definitely interesting to look at Andrew Yang. He's definitely a, a very likable candidate and a candidate that's on the rise that 3.8 might uh, propel him upwards and his performances in debates and in interviews has definitely been impressive. So thank you for coming on and bringing this topic to us. Thank you for having me. And uh, remember, if, if you can, please vote for Yang and remember to donate. Thank you. And even if you don't vote for Yang, make sure you vote for someone because participation is the most important thing you can do right now. But anyway, we're the intellectuals and we're done here.